0: This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Nathan Parker as he offers encouragement to parents whose kids have left the faith. Nathan Parker is the senior pastor of Faith Presbyterian Church in Watkinsville, Georgia. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2021 General Assembly. Let's listen as Nathan Parker helps parents navigate life when their children leave the faith. Uh,
1: it was about 10 years ago when I uh, had an idea for a uh, for a, a book uh, that I, I thought I might write. Um, the story is I was um, on a hike one time, uh, around Durham, England, where my wife and I lived for about 3 years. I was going on a hike, you know, around the the hills around the the castle and the cathedral and the the university where I studied. It was uh 2011, and I was as I hiked, I was listening to a podcast done by a friend of mine here in the United States, and I know that he had just spoken at a church that I used to be affiliated with, and he told the story of speaking at this church and that at the conclusion of his speaking, a family came up to him, a husband and wife, and they told him the story of how brokenhearted they were that neither of their children were walking with the Lord. And as I was walking and listening to this, I said, I'll bet I know who that is. And um, And that was the first time I had the idea that maybe I might Someday, you know, put this into into a book form to tell a little bit of my story and how the Lord brought me back as well as to primarily encourage parents who have children who are not um, following the Lord um, anymore. So this seminar is an opportunity for me to kind of for the first time really put to put pen to paper and um, and get some of these thoughts out there. Um, Now, my assumption uh, this morning is that there are primarily two types of people here. Uh, First is uh, parents uh, with broken hearts because you have a prodigal child. And the second group is uh, pastors who are seeking to pastor parents um, who have broken hearts because they have a, um, a a prodigal child. So I've really had both groups in mind as I have uh, prepared. Now let me give you my outline. First, I'm going to tell my story of one prodigal's rebellion in return uh, then we 'll go to uh, some reminders I want to offer you and helps for dealing with and bracing yourselves for prodigal children and thirdly uh, we 'll ask the question, how is it that the gospel alone can bind up uh, broken hearts So um, I want to start first by um, telling a little bit of my my story um, now this first portion of of, of this seminar. Uh, Will be autobiographical, but it's not primarily just to you know because we all kind of like to talk about ourselves, and it, it's certainly not because you know I want to just put lascivious details out there or anything like that. But rather, I, I do want to provide you with enough detail so that t- so that you can understand how bad things can get, um, and and yet there is there's still hope in in the Lord. Um, my parents were were not perfect, uh, of course. No no parents are are perfect, um, but I think I can say that um, on all of the really big important things, they, uh, they hit it out of the park. Um, primarily, they raised me and my four siblings to, to know the Lord, um, and they must have said to me and my siblings a hundred times, kids, we don't care what you do. We don't care if you're one day a, a street sweeper or a CEO. All we care about is that, you are, is that you're following the Lord and, and, and serving the Lord. Um, and I want to make a, uh, just a bridge to you, right here at the outset, just kind of a passing comment before I really get into my story, and, and it's this. Um, sometimes kids rebel, and there are no understandable or good reasons for, for why that happens. Sometimes it is because of bad parenting, right? A parent does something horrible, or something horrible happens to a child, but not always. And I, I really don't like this next sentence, because I think the word, like, don't judge is sort of overused, but, but really, like, go easy on parents. Who have, uh, who have kids who have strayed. It is not necessarily because of anything that uh, that they have done. Now, wouldn't you think that with that consistent message that I was getting from my, from my parents all my, my growing up years, going to church every week, learning Bible stories, um, memorizing the children's catechism, right? We did that when I was in elementary school, going to VBS. Wouldn't you think that I would have turned out great and would have stayed on the, the narrow path um, well, of course, you you know that that's not the, the way things work. Um, when I was five years old, I remember my mom was folding laundry in, in their house in, in Atlanta, where I grew up and where they still live. And she was folding laundry watching the Pat Robertson. I think this was before he went a little bit, ooh, a little bit cuckoo. Um, uh, and I remember him. Uh, giving this message. And he said, you know, uh, Jesus wants to embrace you and wants to show you love. And that just was really moving to me as a five-year-old. And I was like, I remember starting crying and I told my, I said, I, I want Jesus to embrace me. You know, And my mom said, okay. And, and, and she, she led me, led me to the Lord, um, uh, at that young age. But, um, inside, you know, as I, as I grew, grew to be older, it was obvious that, that, um, well, well, at the very least the work of God was very transient in my life, right? A little bit like Saul, you know? And um, two things that I'll mention really kind of turned me toward a, a really the bad crowd when I was in eighth grade. So what is that, about 13 years old? Um, first was my youth director. Um, uh, I'm going to call him out. name uh, is Tony Souter. He had a huge impact on me. He was the, the youth director at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Atlanta, where I w- was raised. Um, he left Atlanta and took another ministry position. Now, ironically, Tony at this moment is in another room uh, room 275, leading a seminar called What Can Be Done About the Rise of Young People Leaving the Church? And I told him yesterday, I said, well, Tony, they cannot leave their position as being Nathan's youth director, right? That had a, a really, it was re- really, really hard on me. I even told him I was going to throw him under the bus. Tony's a wonderful man. He he, he runs the, the Pray For Me campaign. But when he, he left, that did kind of destabilize me a little bit. Um, second was my closest friend in middle school um, left and, and, and moved Moved away, um, and ironically, he's actually become super famous now. His name's Clint Harp, and he has a like a HGTV a um, uh, TV show called Harp Design Company. He was my, my best friend in, um, in in eighth grade, and he was a really good Christian influence on me. I don't know where he is now, but um, with the Lord. But um, anyway, he moved away. And so in kind of late eighth grade, I started running with like a really unwholesome crowd. Um, my two closest friends and I, we started smoking cigarettes, we started drinking, um, and I, I grew very depressed, uh, and by the time I was in um, ninth grade, I was was actually suicidal. I don't know why. I, there, there's no real good reason that I can point to, but I was just a very angry young kid. Um, I had some bad things happen to me in school when I was younger, you know, getting beat up and stuff like that, but um, I still can't identify what were those serious scars that kind of, you know, moved me in that direction, but um, uh, but eventually I was just kind of given over to, to you know, smoking pot every day and drinking and debauchery and all that, all that kind of thing. Um, by about 10th grade, my, um, my indifference to school really reached a fever pitch. I ended up getting kicked out of high school all four years in a row. Right. So, uh, my senior year, I was almost 18. I, was still a freshman with credits, but my senior year, I got thrown out of the alternative high school. If you get thrown out of the alternative high school, you are a loser, right? So this is how bad, um, this is how bad things, things were. Um, like I, I really, I lived out the words of, of, of Ecclesiastes, whatever you, your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Um, and that was the life that I, that I lived. I remember very often I would, um, you know, I had a curfew of whatever, 11 p.m. or something, and I would call, you know, this was before cell phones. I'd go to a pay phone and call, you know, 10 minutes before curfew and say, yeah, I'll be home in a little bit. My mom would say, you better be home at 11. And then I would just disappear for, for days, you know, just no way of contacting me. I'd just be gone for a few days and then kind of turn turn back around. Um, I remember uh, at one point my dad just uh, really breaking down in, in tears and just really sobbing. Um Uh, because of his sorrow at what a horrible son I I had become. And I remember being sad for him that he was sad, but being like just recalcitrant in my heart, being like I have no intention of of changing. I remember um, directing my middle finger at him at one point right to his face and and swearing at him about something that he had done to to upset me. Um, I eventually kind of became the ringleader. I mean, I found myself selling drugs to my friends, and um, you know breaking into cars and, and doing things like that, um, I never made it on the track team, but um, at one point, I outran the school cop running away from the school. so I had some you know, untapped potential there um, with athletics um, I had a, a, um, had an alias my name was james anderson I think there 's isn 't there an RTS professor somebody called james anderson that was my my fake name. Um, and so, by the time I was 18, I had no high school, no high school credit um, whatsoever. Well, that, that's enough debauchery. What, what turned things around? Um, a couple things. In um, September, well, I'm now trained as a historian, so I remember dates, right? So September 24th, 1995, two very good friends of mine got into a major car accident up in Roswell, Georgia, north of Atlanta. And um, they, uh, the guy who was my friend who was driving killed an innocent bystander. And my two friends who were in the car were um, profoundly, uh, I mean, they were at death's door for, for several months with brain injuries and, and are still profoundly handicapped to this day. That kind of got my attention. You know, you can make a really bad decision in like five seconds of speeding and being high on drugs, and, uh, and that can affect a lot of lives. Um, but it was in um, 1996. Um, about six months later in in January of 1996, that I was at a um, a party at my best friend's house. And, uh, you know, it was just like what you would imagine from like a debauched teenage party, everybody drinking, doing drugs, pretty girls everywhere, just, you know, the life. And um, oh man, I still remember that empty feeling. Um, It's like, I, I realized like, okay, this is as good as it gets, you know, like, this is awesome. And in the middle of all of that, the revelry I remember just having this like sinking, just deepest and darkest, empty feeling like this is so pointless. If this is a, if this is the best that this world offers, then there's no there's no reason to to go on living. And um, and that that really that really got my attention. Um, I heard a, a speaker years later say that the loneliest moment in life is when you experience what you think will be the ultimate and it lets you down. And that was really what what happened to me at, at, at that point. Um, it was a few weeks after that, however, that um, another close friend of mine asked me. He said, you, "He said, I'm kind of depressed. You know, do you believe do you believe in God?" He's like, "You know, you're a Christian," because he knew that I was raised as a Christian. You know, but I was just like stunned. I mean, completely silent when he asked me that question because what was I going to say to him? Like, yeah, look how God's sanctifying me. You know, um, and just him asking that question like flip flip the light switch on. And so that night, in probably March or April of 1996, I went home and woke my parents up and, uh, and apologized for all that I had had put them through. And I don't remember if it was that night or maybe the next day, but my dad said to me, I, I, I was feeling the grief and the sorrow of realizing that I had completely wasted my life, right? So I'm 17 at this point. But I felt like I'd totally wasted my life. And he quoted Joel 2.25, where the prophet says, I will restore to you the years of swarming locust have have eaten and and that idea that God is able to redeem foolish wasted years was so powerful to me and it's still can you tell still very very powerful to me but that that really stuck with me and uh, Graciously, like, that night, my struggle with drugs and alcohol was over. I mean, I'd, I would probably smoke $30 a pot every day. I mean, that's, that's how, how much of a, a druggie I was. And, like, the desire just evaporated um, graciously. Um, however, I've gone on to say that I think at that point, like, the serious struggle, or the struggle with serious and really began, right? You know, smoking pot is, is bad. It's not good for you. It's really foolish, but then it's like, all right, now I have to deal with these other things, like my pride, anger, lust, jealousy, you know, all these other, all these other sins. Um, I will point out that something that was extremely powerful to me is that my parents, like carte blanche, completely forgave me. When they saw that this was legit, they never um, held it over my head. They never brought it up again, like, well, you owe this to us because of all that stuff you put us through. You know, it was like complete and total forgiveness that was was given to me by them. And uh, I mean, I have just as close a relationship now with them as you could could imagine. Um, Well, anyway, and then just catching up a little bit to the present. So that was 1996. Um, So then uh, at at 18 years of age, I reentered the alternative high school. So the second chance high school gave me a second chance. That was nice of them. Um, graduated from high school at 20, then went to, um, business school. Um, the study bug bit me, um, started serving at my church in, in Atlanta. Um, I went to, uh, was at Christ Church Presbyterian in, in Atlanta, kind of the buckhead part of Atlanta. And, um, it is true that the first day that I went to Christ Church, I would have failed a drug test, right? So the first day, I mean, I, I went to church like the week that I was, that I was converted. Um, anyway, uh, Attended there, um, you know, went to RTS in Atlanta, and then ended up working as a youth pastor at, at Christ Church later. Um, did a lot of ministry with Muslims. Um, got married in 2006, and then moved to England from 2010 to 2013, and, and that's where I did a PhD in um, historical theology at Durham. Um, and now we have three children, ages seven, five, and two, who will never get away with anything. <laughs> because I know what a bong looks like, okay? My wife, on the other hand, was the she was the homecoming queen. She was, did honor roll. She did like four O's all the way through graduate school. Completely different for me. And I looked at her one day, kind of with a, with a you know, just awe in my eyes. And I said to her, "I can't believe I married the homecoming queen." And she looked back at me and she said, "I can't believe I married the drug dealing dropout." <laughs> Sorry, ladies, he's taken. Um, The really sad uh, PS to to my story is that every friend of mine from those days is either dead or in jail or still addicted to drugs or they have come to know Christ, every one of them. Um, How and why did I come to Christ? Well, I can't give you the combination. I can't give you the combination for how to unlock your child and draw him or her to Christ. It was grace. It was grace that that plucked me out of the fire. Um, but God knows the combination of what it'll take to turn your child's heart back to the Lord. It is the sovereign God of the universe who has to change hearts and and turn your child, if you have that that rebel or that prodigal, to turn your child back to the Savior. He has the key. He is God and, and you're not. You're not in control of what happens to your child ultimately, but, but God is. You can't control this outcome. You, you have to, to let that go. Um, but with that said, l- let me move on into some reminders. Um, I'll say first that I have three of you in mind, especially, three types of parents in mind as we move into this next section. Um, my aim is to give the following helps that will support three types of parents. Number one is who have prodigal kids who are living in the home right now. Number two, those of you who have prodigals who are who are not living in the home, maybe who are older, who have moved away. And number three, parents who want to prevent their kids from becoming prodigals, right? So this would be kind of preemptive. If you're like, I have kids, I don't want them to become pr- prodigals. Um, and as we go through these 11 points, the first two are longer, and then the, the other nine are, 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 will be quicker. Um, I've, I've had all three of you in, in, in mind. So some points will apply to some and not to others. Um, first is a, is a reminder. Um, is that parenting is a stewardship. You are a steward if you are a parent. Here's a, here's a true false for you. The chief end of parenting is to raise godly children. Is that true or not? Please, somebody say that that's false, please. Okay, false. That's not true. The chief end of parenting is not to raise godly children. The chief end of parenting, as the chief end of all things, is what? to glorify God. You better believe it. That is your job, parent, to glorify God. Isn't it true that parents could honor and glorify God in all of their parenting, and yet their child not come to the Savior? Absolutely. That certainly can happen. Unbelieving children are not necessarily a sign of failed or ungodly parenting. So let me just encourage your soul right now, if you're struggling with that, I must have failed as a parent because my son or daughter doesn't love Jesus. That is not necessarily true. You should give yourself grace because that's not true. Now, if this statement instead was one parenting of, uh, excuse me, one end of parenting is to raise godly children, then that's true, absolutely. But it's not the chief end of parenting. We should take uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one. We can apply that to Apply that to everything. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Um, if you are a faithful steward over your children, then you are not a failed parent, even if your children don't love the Savior. That's a lie. Are you guilty of of child A friend of mine, I I heard use this expression many years ago: child idolatry. Um, uh, another friend of mine, um, he said at one point, talking about his children, he said, "I he said I love my children so much that I feel like if anything bad were to happen to them, it might be over between me and God." I think you can understand the sentiment there, but understand, and I think my friend deeply down believed that, that that's a lie. That's a lie. That is not the way to uh, to to think. That's a dangerous place to be. If you're a Christian, your ultimate allegiance is to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It is not to your children. Under God, it's to your spouse first and then to your children. Your children do not belong to you. I don't care if they're six minutes old or 60 years old. They do not belong to you. They belong to God. They're his creatures. You're a steward over their lives and you have a responsibility before God to raise them up in the nurture and admission of, of the Lord, but they don't belong to you. They belong to Him. And from the time that they're small, I think you have to remind them that your children don't control your life. My children are not King of Kings and Lord of Lords over my life or our home. They don't rule over our lives. And and that's this is a hard thing to consider, but it's worth really driving that deep down into your soul now because it's possible that at some point your child could give you an ultimatum where they say, "Will you reject me, you reject the way that I want to live and the things that I want to believe. Well, you need to choose between me or your God. I, I, I know that has happened before. That's a dastardly thing, by the way, for any child to do. But if that were to happen, you know what the answer is. You know who your allegiance lies to. One way you can remind yourself of this continually is um, with all three of my children, they're seven, five, and two now. um, The first words I said to each of them just cradled that newborn baby. And I looked at them and I said, you belong to Jesus Christ. You belong to him. You don't belong to me and your mom. You're on loan for maybe just a few years or maybe many years. But ultimately, you belong to him. Um, Samuel Rutherford um, I love this quote, this great Puritan, Samuel Rutherford. He, he said this, Give your children room beside your heart, but not in the yoke of your heart, where Christ should be. For then, we might say otherwise, they are your idols, not your children. Well, that's first. Parenting is a stewardship. Um, secondly, another reminder, maybe kind of hard to hear, is that God doesn't owe you anything recognize that God doesn't owe you anything, even if you've been a faithful Christian, thinking that, well, because I'm a Christian or because I'm a faithful Christian or because uh, I believe covenant theology, I got my kids baptized. Doesn't God owe me something out of this deal? That's, that's not true. Um, do you think that, well, look, I've been a good parent and so therefore I, God owes me a good outcome with, with my children. That, that's false. That's not, a, that's not, not found in the, in the Bible. There, there are no guarantees that godly parenting will produce godly children. Uh, there are examples in, in scripture. Um, listen to the progression of the kings of Judah for 123 years. Ahaz, wicked. Hezekiah, his son, godly. Uh, Hezekiah's son, Manasseh, was what? Wicked. Hez, uh, Manasseh's son, Ammon, was what? Wicked. Ammon's son was who? Josiah. Josiah was like the most righteous king out of all of them. But then Josiah's son, Jehoahaz, was what? Wicked, (laughs) right? Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. There's no guarantees in the fallen, in this fallen world. As the creator and the sustainer of the universe, God is beholden to no one. He's beholden to no one. He doesn't owe sinners anything. Um, There was a story several years ago, really just utter tragedy, of a family that was on vacation, mom, dad, three kids, and their car got hit on the highway and killed every one of them. God did that family no wrong. He's the king of the universe, He can do as He pleases. It might be that works righteousness has slipped into your thinking or into my thinking about parenting. Is that possible? Um, there was a, a woman uh, I served at a church, uh, Pinelands Presbyterian Church, down in Miami for for six years before coming to my current call, and um, sat down with a woman who my wife and I are still very close friends with, and we love very much. And she came to faith through the ministry of the church, and uh, and I sat down with her one day, and she was just really, uh, she was just really struggling, and she said, you know, my life still isn't going great. Even though I've trusted Jesus, have I done enough yet for God to turn my life around? You know, I said, well, what, what all have you done? She said, well, like I've been coming to church recently. Like that's pretty good. You know, I've actually been, I've been reading my Bible some, you know, and I looked at her and I said, Oof, it's not enough. I said, you done anything else oh, good. Like keep, you know, what else have you done? She's like, oh shoot. She's like, all right, I don't know. Like I help someone across the street and like, I'm going to do some, vol- I was thinking of doing some volunteering work, you know? And she's like, kind of, is that enough? And I was like, Ugh, not, not enough. Like, keep coming. What else have you got? You know? And she looked at me like, you're a worthless pastor. You're supposed to encourage me, you know? And I said to her, you're still treating God as this transactional figure. If you've done enough, then, you know, if you've done all the done all the right things, then, uh, you know, then God's going to, going to bless you. I said, that's like the whole world of religion. Let me introduce you to this whole other thing. And it's this idea of, of grace, that God is a God of, of, of grace and, and mercy. Um, but it also means he doesn't owe you anything rather. He's gracious to those whom he, whom he chooses. Now this statement that I made, whoops, ah, I advanced a little bit too far there. Um, The statement that God doesn't owe us anything is almost true, but I don't think it's adequate. We need to qualify that. And the reason is because God will never violate his promises. If he is a God who is true to his word, then he he is obligated to, to keep his promises. Listen to how the Puritan John Flavel put it. Though God has reserved... "...to himself a liberty of afflicting his people, yet he has tied up his own hands by promise, never to take away his loving kindness from them." And then he wants us to look inward and say, "...oh my heart, how can you be discontent when God has given you the whole tree with all the clusters of comfort growing on it, because he allows the wind to blow down a few leaves? Indeed, if he had cut off his love or discovenanted my soul... I would have reason to be cast down, but this he has not, he cannot do. Outside of God's promises, however, God is no debtor. And folks, I I hate to put it to you this way. There is no promise that covenant children will necessarily come to faith in Christ. That's not one of the terms of the covenant. We have covenantal grounds, however, to bring our children before the Lord. My parents told me later that many, many, many nights where they wondered if I was alive or dead, they presented me to the Lord and said, God, this is your covenant child. We want him to come to you and and trust you, but his life is in your hands and we trust you with him. Do with him what you will. Infant baptism does not function ex opere operato, right? If you know that old ancient theological expression. The idea that, well, if you bring your children into the covenant, right, through baptism, then they're going to be saved. That's Roman Catholic, right? That, that's not what the Bible teaches about the covenant. Don't relate to God on a transactional level. Um, thirdly, uh, is, is this, and these will go up much quicker now. Um, This is to you, parents, boy, especially if you have that child who's rebelling now. Guard the deposit of the faith and do not compromise. 2 Timothy 1.14, Paul says to Timothy, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. I think it is a spectacular tragedy when one-time faithful Christians turn away from the Lord and his word because of the influence of their children. I mean, I I have seen that um, more times in in the last few years than... than, uh, um, than you can, than you can imagine. And it's, it's awful when parents just say, look, I'm just going to kind of go soft on my theology because gosh, I really, I want my kids to be with, you know, I want them to be there at Thanksgiving Boy, that's a tragedy. Um, in Galatians, th- this is kind of the word to parents who are tempted in that direction is out of Galatians five, you were running well, who hindered you from obeying the truth. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. It's like so many parents who, like, I looked up to for so long, for for decades. It's like you you started out as just an example to generations behind you. What what happened? You, You can't handle the rejection of your children, and so you turn from the Lord? That's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. We must say no, a loving no, to our children when they demand that we waver in our essential Christian commitments. Um, when have you gone too far in supporting your children? I heard a story recently about some parents who are, uh, who are believers, and they paid for their child's gender reassignment surgery. What? That's horrible. That's, that's outrageous. But I will say, and this is important, especially for us who we've got our theology so locked up in the PCA, is make sure that you're dying on essential hills. Does that make sense? So as in if your 18 year old is like, you know, I think I'd rather go to a Baptist church. Praise God. as long as they're preaching the gospel, go to the Baptist Church. I don't care, you know. Um, or if they just don't like the style of your Presbyterian, worship because maybe it's a little too stiff for them and they want to go to a freer Presbyterian church, let them go. Send them with your blessing. You know, I was in that situation. I went to a, a church that has very, very formal worship and then went to a church with less formal worship. And my parents said, yay and amen, son. You're 18. You can make these decisions and we we bless you as you go and didn't have a problem with that. How to reply to your child who says, Well, you got to choose between me and God. Here's a suggestion. Son or daughter, I love you. I would give my life for you, but I will not give my eternal life for you, because that belongs to Christ, and my highest allegiance is to him. Uh, Four is invest in other people. Invest in other young people. Um, Every Christian is called to make disciples. Discipling one's own children is one way that we obey the Great Commission but identify other people, other children to invest in as well. We should bring many, uh, many to heaven with, with us, our children as well as other people's um, children. Um, th- there, are, there are numerous benefits to this. Number one, Jesus told us to do it. So like that's pretty straightforward. Uh, two, um, it may actually help you uh, better learn about uh, and how to connect with your, your own children, to, to have interaction with other, other young children. Uh, you know, teenagers, whatever age. Um, thirdly, there's something encouraging about investing in someone who wants to be invested in. Have you ever noticed that your kids aren't all that interested in your investment in them? <laughs> when they're young, they're just not interested at all, but it might be encouraging to be, to do that with other, um, other young people. And, um, and fourthly, you can help gospel other, um, other people's, other people's kids. It's a, an odd paradox, isn't it? The, the ones that we love the most, uh, at least for a time of their lives, just don't want to have anything to do with us, right? Or just not interested, and in, they're just not going to hear it, hear it from us. I am a. This is incidental, but I, I, I think youth group is is a good thing. I mean, I did youth group for many. I was a youth pastor for for many years, but um, I, I think it's it's good for Christian children to have the influence of of, of other Christian children. I think that that's a um, uh, that's a very that's a very good thing. Um, there was a, a mother in um, at the church in Florida who. Uh, she felt like her life had um, had had really been wasted because she opted to homeschool her children and to, to not work outside the home and to to raise her, her children. Um, and she was heartbroken. Like, did I waste my life? Why did I go through all of this if my kids aren't following the Lord? And, um, you know, my one of my encouragements to her is um, is to. You know, there are other young people you can invest in, and you never know how God might use that. So one way to mitigate risk is to diversify our investments in other people, okay? Um, If your number one aim in life is to raise godly children, and they don't turn out godly, you will feel like a failure. That's true. So invest in other children as well as your own. Fifthly, boy, this is important, is carefully monitor your children's friendships. I think parents, especially when your children are younger, you need to um, regulate um, who the, who your kids spend time with, but without being overly protective. I think being overly protective is actually not a good thing. You don't don't put your kids in just a Christian bubble where the only people they interact with are Christians. I don't think that's good. I went to public school in in, in Atlanta, and I think that was a good move. Um, I think some parents will only let their children be around other Christians. And then they get a taste of what the world is like, and they just run crazy. You know, I mean, that's the story that a lot of people, a lot of people have. They, they realize that, hey, all these like heathens that I've been hearing about are actually fun, and they're nice too, and I like hanging out with them more. Well, I, I, I uh, you know, our, our policy for our young children is we want them to have friends who are Christians and who are non-Christians as, as well. But we will monitor those those friendships. Um, one policy my wife and I have come up with too that I, will um, take it or leave it. But um, we we will not allow our children to have any spend the nights. Either kids going us, our kids going to other kids' houses or other kids coming to to our house. That's just a kind of a personal policy we we decided on. Um, it sounds extreme, but I think it's actually wise. In my case, all of my firsts, like the first time I did XYZ was at a spend the night where there was just no monitoring from, from, uh, um, from parents. Um, if you set that as a policy, you would do well to do that early on instead of like when they're 14 and they've been spending the night for years, you know. Um, anyway, something to, to consider, but th- this, is, this is awfully important here. Um, number six is regularly have, with my sons, I call it bro time. Right, and with my little two-year-old daughter, we call it, you know, a date with dad. But regularly spend that time with with your kids. I, I think that's a huge step to keeping close with them, especially when, um, uh, when you know when your kids are are younger. To have that regular connection with them is so important. It's like don't uh, just kind of nod off when they get to be eight, nine, ten years old, and then you before you know it, they're sixteen, and you haven't spent any quality time with them. That's that's a, a one way that kids can. Uh, can strays if they've not had any meaningful time with you. Um, this is a little bit horrible to say, but I want to suggest that in an odd way, the axiom, keep your friends close and your enemies closer, may fit well here, right? So kind of stay close to your kids as they go through those years where oftentimes there's enmity between, um, between parents and, and kids. Um, I will say that when I was a teenager, I remember my dad initiating a um, kind of a weekly family Bible study as, uh, as a teenager and even even as I was in the midst of of great rebellion in those years, i I could have to admit I could still sense that there was something that I something good that I got out of it at the end of that time. You know we did it for twenty or thirty minutes, whatever it was, and even though I hated it, it was like I despise this and the Bible, I'm not interested in these things. You know, about 20 minutes in, you know, 15, 20 minutes in, I, I still remember just being kind of calmed by it. Like, okay, this actually was kind of meaningful, you know. And I think it may have kind of kept me from some of the, um, the, the worst sins that I could have fallen into. Um, seven is a big one. Boy, and this is hard for those of us who are proud, is apologize to your children for areas where you recognize you failed. And it could be like that thing I did this morning or that thing I did five years ago. But if you can identify those things that have been really hurtful to your children, just apologize and, and mean it, right? Son, daughter, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, if we, Christian parents, if we come ag- across as just proud and arrogant, as if, like, well, you know, mom and dad, we never really do anything bad. Like, that's crazy. You know that's crazy. I know that's crazy, right? I mean, we all, we all sin. We all fail. Um, be humble. Say you're sorry when you err. Um, and, uh, and, and and make that right, I think that's very powerful. Your children need to see that you are not that you're not perfect, right? Because you know you're not perfect, and I know you're not none of us none of us are. To say that out loud, I think can be uh, can be uh, salutary. Um, next is introduce them to apologetics and kind of age um, appropriate. Stages. I think it's important to expose your kids to uh, material that will help them see that um, Christianity can be defended so that they'll be alert to things out there. Um, and started at started a fairly uh, young age. My, my parents did this with me, and even though I was not a, a believer, I kind of enjoyed having some really powerful arguments against naturalistic evolution that I was able to kind of lob toward my whatever, sixth, seventh, eighth grade teachers that they didn't have good responses to, right? My dad actually wrote a little book about this called Science Bows Down. And um, anyway, so I got introduced to those things that uh, even though, I, again, I was not walking with the Lord, I still liked that I could um, th- th- kind of point out that the emperor had no clothes. Um, it's important that we need to, um, we need to be aware or, or to beware of communicating that every Christian has to believe <clears throat> exactly as we do in order to be a Christian. So be careful. You don't want to communi- communicate that to your kids. Um, when I was young, I think I had the idea that it was very difficult and maybe impossible for a committed Christian to believe anything other than young earth creationism. Now, that's a view that I still hold and I, and I still find compelling theologically and scientifically as well. But um, I recently took my kids um, to the Ark Museum, and uh, we, we took our kids to the Ark Museum in, in Kentucky. Um, and I made sure to point out that, you know, orthodoxy is not narrow at every point. Does that make sense? It's not narrow at every single point. On the essentials, it's very narrow. But it's not it's not uniformly narrow across the um, across the spectrum. Um, I think cr- Christian parents can give their children the idea that people who believe in atheistic evolution or you know are fully supportive of all things LGBTQ are are monsters. We should not be giving them that idea. That's a horrible thing to teach our children. Now we know that those who hold those views are sinners and they are under the wrath and judgment of God. But we would expect people who are sinners under the wrath and the judgment of God who are living in sin to do things that are displeasing to God, right? So we need to be compassionate. We need to be loving toward those with whom we, we disagree. So be careful how you communicate your uh, uh, your, your Christian convictions to, to your children. Um, ninth is help them develop a realistic view of this world with all of its beauty and brokenness. Um, We need to consistently inculcate in them the truth that the Christian life is a life of struggle, spiritual exertion, disappointment, joy, victory, loss, and hope. This is a bad world, but it's also a beautiful world, isn't it? So try to correct their misunderstandings about the faith, because very often it's misapprehensions about the faith that turn people away. Um, I know a young woman who had a, had a real serious accident when she was um, a kid and it turned her away from God. She said, how could God have let this accident happen to me? I don't have any interest in believing in that kind of a God. Um, so she just had, had a, uh, her, her theology was off, right? The idea that, well, God's not gonna let anything bad happen to me. Well, that's, that's not true. We shouldn't let our, our kids, uh, think that way. So parents should have a robust theology of the brokenness of the world and a robust theology of the, the, the redemption of the world, the restoration of the world that will come in the future. Uh, number 10, parents, want to, in the next few minutes I want to just bring this right home to you, is, <coughs> is <coughs> excuse me, repent of your despair. <coughs> I think parents can feel like failures when their children stray, but to give in to d- despair is not God-honoring Despair distrusts a sovereign God. Spurgeon uh, put it this way. You have no right to let your despair triumph over the promises of God. If your child is still alive, then the final word has not been written. It's understandable to lament when your children make ungodly decisions, but do not despair. Those decisions could be the very thing that draws them back to the Savior. Try to tell the story very quickly. a friend of mine um, and, and his, a friend of mine his um, his sister um, informed him that she was no longer a Christian, and she was going to go and live and move in with her boyfriend and My Christian friend and his wife were heartbroken and he said they like prayed and fasted and wept and came before God like god don 't let her make this decision. we plead don 't let her make this decision and what did she do? She made the decision and she went and lived with her boyfriend and they were distressed like god why would you have not answered that prayer well to make a long story short within a few months she had moved out with her boyfriend and she came to the savior and later they asked her like why did you how did how is it you came to faith and you know what she said she said it was when i moved out and lived with my boyfriend that i saw that this wasn't all that it was cracked up to be isn't that ironic now, that doesn't mean we tell our children, well, we, you know, you could, like, try some heroin. That wouldn't be bad. You know, sleep around, you know, and then maybe God will reclaim you. Of course not. But allow for the possibility that God might be using that to draw them to to himself. Um, was all the time and effort of your investment in your child wasted? No way. God, no doubt, was shaping you through the years of investment that you have made in your kids. Be mindful of that, please. Um, number 11th and Lastly, on this point, is if they're deaf to all else, prodigals may be able to hear grace. If your children is deaf to all else, they might be able to hear grace. Um, There's a part of you that may need to let your kids fail, to let them make bad choices. Um, You probably say, like me, but I don't want them to make the same mistakes that I made, right, and have the scars, I, I, I hear you and I agree, but pressuring them, it will not necessarily prevent them from making the same mistakes. Your pressure could actually be, be driving them away. You see, prodigals are spiritually deaf. Prodigals are spiritually deaf. They'll be deaf to your voice and to the voice of of the Lord, but maybe they will hear grace. Let me ask you a question here. Have you ever shown your, your child unmerited grace? That's oxymoron, right? where like they seriously deserve punishment for something, right? And before you mete out whatever the punishment is going to be, you say what you did was wrong and you deserve punishment x, but I'm going to f- forgive you. I'm going to show you grace. Have you ever done that to your to your children? That's not a bad practice. They might be able to to hear to hear that. Well, let me uh, thirdly, and this is <coughs> will be very quickly, um Go to how the gospel alone can bind up uh, broken hearts. Um, Jesus, the good shepherd, is the one in Luke 15 who goes and pursues the one sheep that strays, right? And isn't it true that when we read Luke 15, you, you think of the person. It could be your child. It could be like that person in who used to go to church and now they're living this lifestyle, you know, and you think, you know, that awful stray, how could they? We probably read it and think, well, yeah, this is my prodigal child, the one who strayed from the 99. Folks, the one who strayed is you and me, still today, and you and and you. That's how you're supposed to read that parable in Luke 15. It's not the, the worst of us. That's not the one who strays. It's all of us. So is your child a prodigal? Well, let that be a constant reminder that you are in the same boat. You are a prodigal parent every day, aren't you? So am I. Can you trust your kind, loving Heavenly Father that he's wise in all his ways to sanctify you and to shape you into the image of Jesus? Maybe your prodigal is his method of doing that powerfully. Are you open to that as a possibility that God is using your prodigal to change you, to make you more like Jesus? I think he is. Listen how um, John Flavel puts it. I I love this. I'm going to end in the next few minutes with a few Flavel quotes. Here's his his question. Uh, how can a Christian under great afflictions, how, they may, how can they keep their heart from despondency under the hand of God? You get the question? Well, here's the help that he offers. It would much comfort the heart under adversity to consider that God, by such humbling providences, i.e., maybe a prodigal child, may be accomplishing that for which you have long prayed and waited, Say, Christian, haven't you prayed many prayers to God, such as these, that he would keep you from sin, reveal to you the emptiness and insufficiency of the creature, that he would kill and mortify your lusts, that your heart may never find rest in any enjoyment but Christ? Why now, by such humbling, humbling and impoverishing strokes, God may be fulfilling your desire, Would you have your heart to rest nowhere but in the bosom of God? What better way can you imagine providence should take to accomplish your desire than by pulling from under your head that soft pillow of creature delights on which you rested before, and yet you fret at this peevish child? When's the last time you were called a peevish child? Peevish child, how you try your father's patience. Here's the key sentence. Is it not enough that God is so gracious to do what you desire, but you may be so impudent to expect that he should do it in the way that you prescribe. Don't grow bitter toward God. This trauma that maybe you're in the middle of right now, it could be the answer to the prayers you have prayed for sanctifying grace. Well, I want to close with a prayer. A long prayer for your children. And this again comes out of Flavel. I, my focus was Flavel in my, my thesis. Um, and this, this prayer is one that I am praying your son or daughter will pray soon. This is his suggested prayer for the penitent. <clears throat> oh, I am weary of the service of sin. I can endure it no longer Lord Jesus, you were anointed to preach glad tidings to the meek and to proclaim liberty to the captives. In the opening of the prison to those who are bound, come now and knock off those fetters of unbelief. Set my soul at liberty that it may praise you for so many years Satan has cruelly tyrannized over me. Oh, that this might be the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of the salvation of my God. Lord, you were lifted up to draw men unto you, and indeed you are a drawing savior, a lovely Jesus. I have hitherto slighted you, but it was because I did not know you. My eyes have been held by unbelief when you were opened in the gospel, but now I see you as the most chief of 10,000. You are the glory of heaven, The glory of earth, the glory of Zion, and oh, that you would be the glory of my soul. I confess that I am not worthy that you should look upon me. Oh, my Lord, I am willing to submit to any terms, be they ever so hard and ungrateful to my flesh. I am sure that whatever I I shall suffer in your service cannot be like what I have suffered or am likely to suffer by sin. Henceforth, you be my Lord and master. In your service is perfect freedom. Be my priest and profit, my wisdom and righteousness, I resign up myself to you, my poor soul with all its faculties, my body with all its members, to be living instruments of your glory. Let my tongue from now on plead for you, my hands be lifted up to your testimonies, my feet to walk in all your ways. Oh, let all my affections as willing servants wait upon you and be active for you. Whatever I am, let me be for you. Whatever I have, Let it be yours. Whatever I can do, let me do for you. Whatever I can suffer, let me suffer for you. Oh, that I might say before I go from here, my beloved is mine and I am his. Oh, that what I have begged on earth might be ratified in heaven. My spirit within me says, amen. Lord Jesus, you say, amen. That prayer is for your children, but it's also a prayer for you parents. Because the gospel that your children need is the very same gospel that you need. I pray that that might be your prayer uh, today. You can hear
0: more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.